Welcome to the Kiddie Pool Podcast, where we dip and dangle our toes into the sparkly waters of kids' media. We talk to writers, authors, actors, researchers, musicians, anyone who has their hand in making magic for the newest generation of human beings. We want to know what is being made for kids, who is making it, why they're making it, and what sets their soul on fire. What are they making for breakfast? What do they do when everything around them goes still? It's just a relaxing day at the pool among friends. Hey, we're gonna have a day. I'm your host, Carly Shiraki, and today's guest is my friend and former colleague, Kimberly Chalmers Diaz a.k.a. Kim Diaz, a.k.a. Bones. She's worked as a writer and producer at Nick Jr., a writer, producer, and puppeteer, hello Chica, at Sprout, and she is the newly minted creative producer at Sesame Studios, Sesame Workshop's YouTube channel, a new short-form digital play space. She's a mom-to-be, as in her daughter's name is B. She's a Star Trek enthusiast. She's intelligent, funny, and flexible. Literally, she is a former gymnast. She's allergic to strawberries, and she is here with me in Brooklyn, and I'm wearing a shirt that she gave me that features Mickey Mouse dressed as Michael Jackson, (laughs) Kim Diaz. Welcome to the kiddie pool. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was an amazing intro. Let's get right into the waters here. I am interested in knowing how your journey into kids' media began. Well, I don't know if there was a definite starting point to it because it's something I've wanted to do for a really, really long time. I think around when I was 11, I decided I wanted to, well, at that time I wanted to be like a TV sitcom director. Really? Um, But yeah, (gasps) I was inspired by the well-known must-see TV property, Mad About You. (laughs) I was just obsessed with it. I loved everything about Paul and Jamie Buckman's life. I named my hamster Jamie. I had a notebook that I would write down facts that you learn about the characters through the episodes in it. You didn't know this before, did you? (laughs) It's funny. So I decided when I was in middle school that I wanted to be like some kind of writer, director kind of person. And then I got into high school and I was figuring out, okay, maybe I should go to film school. Maybe I should really learn how to do this stuff and figure out how to get a job. And at the same time, my parents who had gotten divorced when I was eight or nine, they both got remarried when I was in middle school. And then they both had more kids when I was in high school. Ah. So I had grown up with just one brother a year younger than me. And all of a sudden, when I got to high school, I was surrounded by babies and little kids again. And so I was going to school and taking classes and hanging out with my friends and stuff. But a lot of weekends and nights and vacations I spent with little kids. And so it was kind of a lot of stuff going on in my head at the same time. I was doing all these creative projects on my own. I was interested in doing film and TV. And then I was just spending lots of time with little kids and seeing how they play and how they communicate. And then also just watching them watch TV and realizing that kids TV seemed like a place where I could probably combine all of these interests I had and use my creative energy to create something that might be really valuable. I got to NYU and I don't know what it's like now, but when I went, the philosophy was very auteur based. It was important to them to encourage their students to write and produce and direct their own films and realize their own creative vision. And the career council in general was, you're going to get out of school and you'll get into festivals and some big studio will give you a three-picture deal and then you'll move to Hollywood and Ah. you'll be set. And I think I made the right choice for myself. I realized that doesn't sound right for me. I kind of want a job. And so 
I interned at a couple of kids shows. One was in London for the BBC. And then did you not know know that? that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I interned on two shows in in London because the first one was called Exchange and it was canceled on the day that I started. (laughs) Um, But it was really, really fun. It was actually was a lot like Sunny Side Up because it was a live studio show and it was bigger. They had kids and they had big celebrity guests and bands and stuff. Yeah. So that was canceled the day I started it. It kept running while I was there. But after a little while, they asked me like, oh, do you want to see what it's like on this other show? And it was another live show um, called Blue Peter. At the time, it had been on the air for 57 years, I think. Wow. So every British person you know grew up watching it. So I got to do a lot of hands-on stuff. I was making props. I dressed up as an elf for, like, these holiday segments for them. So I did a lot of, like, weird, fun stuff on that show. It was cool to see the production in action, but I was getting people tea and filing stuff. So And then I interned at Little Airplane Productions on the first season of The Wonder Pets. And then I got out of school, and at the time, I hadn't really thought anything about which age group within children's I wanted to focus on. But it turned out that a couple months later, I heard about a PA job at Nick Jr. in the promos department. And I had been told it would help to focus either on preschool or older kids or either animation or live action. So I figured, you know what, preschool, I just did this preschool show. It seems kind of fun. And so I went for it and was lucky enough to get the job. And uh you began your journey. I began my journey. <laughs> yeah. Can I tell you a quick story about the costume? Yes. Okay. So I was at NYU in film and one of their study abroad programs was a BBC internship program. So that's how I got it. Okay. If you got selected for the program, you would go to London and for the first six weeks of the semester, you would just do all these production classes through the BBC and like go to this museum and write a report on some of the art you've seen. Like it was very non-academic. And then the last six weeks of the semester was internship full time. And the way it worked with them placing you on a show is that there was this coordinator who handled everything. He tried to figure out what you were most interested in. And then it was a surprise. Like you were supposed to show up on your first day and then find out where you were going. Oh, my God. I didn't know what it was and I didn't know what I'd be doing or anything. A week or two before my internship was going to start, I got a phone call and it was this production coordinator and he was like, Hello, I'm James from Exchange. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he told me that he needed my clothing size. And I was like, why? What do you need it for? And he said, it's for your elf costume. And I I was just like, okay, um, I don't actually know what size you should get me because I think sizes are a little different. But I was like, here's approximately what I wear. And then I just hung up and I didn't ask him anything else. You didn't ask why? <laughs> no, because I was so excited to have this weird surprise waiting what? for me. So for like two weeks, I was just floating around London, knowing that I was going to have to wear an elf costume for work and not knowing why. And my first week, it was like the first day they said, okay, pack your stuff because tomorrow we're going to Liverpool and Wales for two days and we're shooting all these Christmas things and you're dressing as an elf. And so it was me and these two other people who worked there dressed as elves and this one other guy dressed as Santa. We went to like eight different locations in two days. We popped out from behind different things and they edited it together later and the game for kids was like, see how many elves you can count. And Santa was like chasing us. It was really crazy. I went ice skating in Wales dressed as an elf. It was just like so bizarre, but I just wanted to tell you. No, I love that story so much. It's funny because I, so I want to eventually ask you a little bit about Sesame Studios. Before we get to Sesame Studios, though, I wanted to talk about how you fell into being Chica on Sunny Side Up because 
you were not a puppeteer by trade, but you ended up doing that job. And mm-hmm. I assumed that that was like the craziest foray into performing in your life. <laughs> I but I'm not. wrong. You were an elf on skates in Liverpool first. Uh-huh. So after the elves and after Nick Jr., you found your way to Sprout, which mm-hmm. is where I met you working on the Sunny Setup show. And can you just talk a little bit about being trained as a puppeteer when that was not your background? Per the elf story, um, I kind of try to live my life responsibly and and whatever, but I really love having unique experiences and going on adventures. And so I worked at Nick Jr. for five and a half years. I was a PA and then I was an AP and then I was a writer-producer and it was really fun, but it was a little stressful. Um, And also I'd lived in New York my whole life pretty much and I was just really starting to feel like I needed to try doing something else and the kids media industry and especially the preschool tv industry and especially on the east coast is it's a relatively small group of people and so I had worked with another producer at Nick Jr. who then went to work at Sprout this was in 2009 I think she got back in touch with me like just a couple months later after she moved to Philadelphia to work at Sprout and said, there's this job opening that's on a show called The Sunny Side Up Show. It's writing and producing and puppeteering and it's a really fun job. And she was like, I wish that I could get this job. So are you interested? And I was like, I guess so. I had never really thought about living in Philly before. I didn't really think it would be a possibility. You know, I kind of only thought I'd live in New York or LA or, you know, Toronto or London or something like that. I never thought Philadelphia. I had to do a writing sample and an interview. And then they said, great, we really like you. Come down for an audition. I mean, I was pretty scared. You know, I didn't know what I was doing at all. I'd never done any performance except for, I guess, gymnastics. (laughs) Um, And I guess that elf thing I had done. Um, But I went down, I did the audition and everybody at Sprout seemed so awesome. And I had a really good feeling when I left but I also kind of felt like I don't really know how that went and they called me a little while later and just said we're sorry we really like you but we decided we really needed to hire somebody who had a strong puppeteering background this time but we really like you and we're going to keep in touch with you I said thank you or whatever and I figured no they're never going to call me I assumed that they were kind of lying and there was some other thing they didn't like about me. And I never thought I would hear from them again. It's like the battle of the actor every (laughs) single day. You think it's about 10 other things when it's probably just, they just need someone with a little more experience. I encounter that a lot from the other side because people pitch to us all the time and we only say yes to a very small number of things. And sometimes the reason is that we don't go with something is something really big. Sometimes it's something that's just a matter of taste and other times it's like, We got like four pitches that were really similar and either none of them seemed like the right fit or we just liked this other one a little more. So you got rejected (laughs) and you (laughs) dealt with that rejection how? I was an AP at that time. So I just kept working at Nick Jr. kept making promos and interstitials and moved on with my life. I got married during that time and I changed my email address (gasps) and I moved from Sunnyside to Astoria. Little did you know you would soon move. To a different sunny side. Exactly. I had just moved into this apartment in Astoria and my phone rang 
And it was Forrest Harding, who we both worked with at Sunnyside Up. And he was like, oh, Kim, Kim Chalmers, is it you? Have I found you? And I was (gasps) like, my name is Kim Diaz now. But yeah, it's me. And he said, I tried emailing you over and over. And I was like, oh, yeah, you probably have my old. I had like a Yahoo.com email before that. It wasn't like working anymore. So I switched to Gmail and I lost contact with Sprout. This was three years after that first audition. Wow. And he said, we really liked you and the job has opened up again. And are you still interested? I did not realize it was three years. It was two years between, yeah, when they called. Because it took like six months for the job to work out the second time because they called me in like October and then it wasn't until February that they actually really formally were approved to hire somebody so I did the writing test again and I went down to Philly again and auditioned again (laughs) and this time I left and I just thought okay I think I did everything that I could so we'll see if it worked out but it just I had such a fun time the first time all those years ago that I really never forgot about it they called the next day and I was at an audio session and they offered me the job and I was really excited and, you know, there were a couple of things that were obstacles for me. You know, I had to move. I went from being a producer back to being an AP and it was less money, but it just seemed so fun and so different that I couldn't pass it up. So Hmm. I know. Chasing the adventure, chasing the fun. I like it. I know. I guess I, I fell into it because I had experience with writing and producing short content for preschoolers and then... They saw enough hand-eye coordination in me and enough lack of shyness (laughs) that they figured that I could be trained. And so I moved to Philly. I think I asked for like a month to be able to make the transition. You know, two weeks notice didn't seem like enough. This is the other thing. I was in the middle of producing a big rebrand for Nick Jr. at the Uh. time. So I kind of wanted to hang around and see it launch. (laughs) So I moved down to Philly in the middle of March in 2012. I got a crappy little tiny weird apartment that was just for a month so I could get to know the city and explore on my bike and see what it was all about and for that month I took Chica I took the puppet back to my apartment with me every night and just practiced holding my arm over my head practiced getting her mouth to open right I did that all night at home and I did it all day at work and then a month later they put me on tv and I shudder to think about what it looked like at first but yeah that's how it happened it probably took me about six months of being on the show to really feel comfortable with it. But, you know, I did it. I figured, why not? (laughs) I love that. And as somebody that's a writer and producer by trade, which is a pretty good way to have control over what you're making, you were then suddenly working as an unscripted character. Because Sunnyside Up is a live show. We figure out the beats of what we're going to do in a segment, but it is unscripted. How... Did your brain make sense of that? It was a weird transition at first because so much of promo work happens in post-production and the work is so short that you really agonize over every frame, every second, every shot. It's literally down to the frame. Sometimes you're giving and getting notes with your editors and your supervising producers. And then when you do VO records, first of all, the scripts go through so many rounds of revisions and then you do the VO records and you get so many takes and then sometimes you think your cut sounds perfect and you send it in for approval and someone says, well, I didn't like how that guy pronounced, he didn't say Monday, he said Monday. And you have to go back and replace it again. So it's like I was so used to agonizing over every single little thing. So with Sunny Side Up, it wasn't just working in a live show, it was also just the different approach to branding that Sprout had. Nick Jr. wanted to be so polished and 
high fidelity all the time. And Sprout was so homegrown and homemade feeling, you know, with intent. It was purposely imperfect. I just had to relax a little bit. And once I realized that the show was supposed to feel live, we were supposed to make mistakes. That was the thing that I came to love most about working on it. People asked me too, you know, it's a live show. It must be so much pressure. Don't you worry that you're going to make a mistake? And I would say, well, yeah, but if you make a mistake, it's a live show. So then it goes away immediately. (laughs) Exactly. Do you think that that frame of thinking then impacted the written stuff that you've worked on since then or also at Sprout? Yes and no. I mean, definitely the stuff for Sprout. I approached it with that Mm -hmm. in mind. Occasionally, we would write scripts for a segment or something. And I knew that we had to have the language right on the page. But I also knew that whatever happened on the show was going to happen. And so I purposely, well, you know this, because you've performed scripts that I've written, Mm -hmm. try to keep the language interesting, but bare bones enough Mm -hmm. that the talent working with it can add whatever they want in the moment. I'm really at this point, not precious at all about anything I write Mm -hmm. for work whether it's for my staff job or some other freelance client, I don't care. Like if you give me a note and I understand it, I'll do it. Cool. But I think the number one thing that working on Sunny Set Up and performing on it did to impact what I write and produce is that now I know what it's like to be in front of the camera and I know what it's like for someone to hand you a script and say, do this and make this happen and make it make sense. And so now when I write something, I can't help but think about what it's going to be like for the people that really have to do it. It sounds like something that every writer should do, but I don't think that every writer necessarily does. And I certainly didn't think about it that way before I was on the show. Okay. Writers, go seek out an unscripted puppeteering television opportunity now. (laughs) Or just do some kind of improv, do some kind of acting, anything. Get your brain into what it's like to Yeah, or just make yourself read your scripts out loud at home and see what it really feels like to say these words. It's very, very important to tell stories and to tell the story you want to tell but the thing is with film and tv especially as opposed to writing a book it's that you're really writing a diagram for something that other people are going to have to make happen (laughs) yeah i want to talk about sesame studios to me it appears to be a youtube channel created by sesame workshop called sesame studios there's a lot of good stuff on there you've got this adorable digital character marvy who hosts the channel and i've seen everything from animated segments to what is in my dad's beard. I'm obsessed with that. I love that. I'm seeing a lot of real kids in the segments. It seems like there are a lot of different things happening right there. Can you speak to the mission statement as you see it of Sesame Studios and what your role is over there? So yeah, you're right. Sesame Studios is a YouTube channel launched by Sesame Workshop. Sesame Workshop's mission statement is to help kids grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. Mm -hmm. And so Sesame Studios... stronger, (laughs) kinder, on Sesame Street. Yeah. Is that the right order? Yeah. Yes. It is. And so Sesame Studios also tries to do that. Cool. It launched in May, and we are under the creative development department, which for many companies is one of the first departments you need because we're looking for new content to produce. But for Sesame Workshop, it's actually a very, very new department because the company has been making Sesame Street for almost 50 years now. And we've made other shows since then, but only now are we really looking at trying to find lots and lots and lots of new content and explore original ideas from all kinds of different people out there who haven't necessarily worked on Sesame Street. 
So the channel, the way it is structured, we put up three videos every week. So it's a ton of stuff. I think we have 90 videos up already since May. We have a new Marvie video come out every Monday. So she's that host character Mm -hmm. that you talked about. And she's a digital puppet, which is really cool technology. She was designed and programmed just for us. And that content, I think we shoot it once a month or so. So we shoot like four or five segments in one day. So those go up on Mondays. Wednesdays, we have our narrative series. They're not often one-offs. Sometimes they are, but a lot of times they're short series that are three or four episodes long. We have a handful that have like eight episodes, but that's rare. And then Fridays are all music videos. Mm. A lot of those are curricular in some way. And we have this whole grid of eight big whole child curriculum areas that we try to maintain a balance of in our videos. And then some of them are just celebratory for holidays. So we have Halloween, we're going to do um, Thanksgiving, we have two Christmas videos, and I'm already starting to work on a Lunar New Year one and um, Black History Month one. So and it's similar to Sunny Set Up in that way, where we try to reflect what's going on in kids' real lives. We work with a huge variety of different people and lots and lots of different visual styles and lots of different music styles. So Right now, we are really just trying to explore. We're trying to make things fast and cheap and Mm -hmm. get them up quickly. We have the advantage of a lot of people who have tons of experience in producing entertaining content for preschoolers and also amazing education and curriculum advisors, too. So we try to take advantage of all those resources at Sesame, but still help these creators realize their vision, too. And so once we have our videos finished, they go up on the site and kids and their millennial parents can all watch (laughs) them together. But then the other thing that happens is since we are the creative development department, we see how things are going, not only how they're performing on the site, but what it's like working with different creators and how easy it is for scripts to come together for a property and how the production quality is. We feel out the individual projects and when projects have something special about them, we actually look at developing them into long form shows And then going out and pitching them to networks and distributors. It's a lot of stuff that's happened already in six months. (laughs) Sounds like there's a lot of experimentation going Mm -hmm. on and a lot of vigilance around, okay, what's working so we can stick in that direction and maybe what's not working so we can keep varying things up. Technically, this is the first time I'm not working in television, you know, because it's a digital brand. And the subtle differences between making short form content from preschoolers on TV versus for YouTube. But it's it's, real differences. It is. YouTube, you don't really technically know who's watching. The ratings don't reflect. Like, I mean, if you're watching YouTube video, how, how does YouTube know who you are? They might know your Gmail address, but they don't know how old you are and they don't know where you live and Mm. they don't know who you're watching it with. Um, I hope they don't. Yeah. So the tracking is really different. And then it's also the kind of stuff that people go to YouTube to watch. Kids, I think, increasingly are going to non-linear sources for their entertainment, just for whatever they want to watch or music videos they like. But then there's all these unboxing videos and surprise egg videos and gameplay, like videos that are so, so popular that when you look at them as somebody who has a background in television, they're baffling. It's so bizarre and specific. Mm -hmm. Okay, how often are you trying to engineer content around a trend that you already know exists? Like, we can observe that this, this, and this is a recipe for a million-hit video. 
So the channel is run by the creative development department. There's also a digital programming department that gives insight to the YouTube analytics stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there's also research and curriculum who want to make sure we're making high quality educational content. So there is a lot of back and forth around that. But basically, every time I put out an RFP, a request for pitches every few months, there is always something in it about, we want an unboxing video. We want this. We want that. But so far, we never actually want those things. I got over 100 pitches the last time I sent out one of these. And the stack was like this. You can't see it. She's got her hands about, I don't know, 12 inches from each other. Half or seven. I don't know. It was two binders full of pitches. And... When you have a whole bunch of pitches and there are so many ideas in there, you have a limited number of slots to fill, first of all. And then you have some ideas that there's something very visually engaging about them. And, oh, that animation sample is so cute. Oh, I love this music track you sent. And then you also have, oh, here's an unboxing video because people like to watch those. It's just we don't seem to really actually be drawn to them, even though the business side of the people that are making these videos we're interested in figuring it out but we don't want to just make something that isn't also going to be a good piece of entertainment wow what an exciting time to be at that job yeah i'm really interested to see how it develops and what happens to it i guess it's the opposite of working in a live show where i said earlier if you do something on a live show you do it and then it's gone <laughs> the way this youtube channel is we put up a video and then it's just up there forever, forever. <laughs> so <laughs> We could never take things down, but right now we haven't. So it's it keeps growing and growing and growing. And it's going to be interesting to see how people navigate that. Yeah. So I have a sense of what you make now and how you came to where you are. But if we wind the clock all the way back as a kid consuming media, what was your favorite thing to watch growing up? <laughs> Besides Mad About You. <laughs> Besides Mad About You, which had its own special place in your creative journey. Yeah. Can you speak to a kid's property. So I watched a lot of TV growing up. My parents did not censor anything. So I watched horror movies and I watched a Star Trek with my dad. I loved Jeopardy. I loved Nickelodeon. I loved Disney movies. I did my fair share of watching Sesame Street, but my number one love on television as a child was a little show called Wishbone. Yeah, which I think it was on PBS and in, I think, fourth grade, I would come home after school and I think it was on four o'clock, it was on channel 13, 4.30, it was on channel 25, five o'clock, it was on channel 13 again. How do you still remember the schedule? I, I, I don't know. I'm sorry that I do, but I loved it. It's a show about a Jack Russell Terrier. I guess you hear his inner monologue because his voice, it's not like his mouth doesn't lip sync along to the things he's saying, but you hear what he's thinking all the time. And he has an owner named Joe who's a boy and Joe has two friends and they go on adventures in their whatever suburban town they live in. But at the same time, a parallel adventure is happening that is a live action retelling of a classic piece of literature with Wishbone, the Jack Russell Terrier, in a starring role, sometimes romantic leads. It was just a whimsical journey into literary history, and I loved it a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And so I would actually, I had some VHS tapes that I would set up with my VCR, and I would wait for the show to start at four o'clock, and I would hit record and record the opening theme song. And then after the theme song, the title card would come up and you would know what episode it was. So if it was an episode that I hadn't recorded yet, I would 
keep recording it and then, you know, hit stop at the end and make a little note on my track list for whatever my episode list for the, the VHS. But if it was an episode that I had already on my tape, I would stop it and then rewind it to make sure that I taped over it. Because I wanted my tape, my archive of Wishbone episodes to be perfect and not have any duplicate episodes and not have any double theme songs. Such so a thoughtful I, producer I, <laughs> of your own Wishbone library. Yeah. And so I spent whatever that was, like an hour and a half every afternoon working on my Wishbone library. And my tapes, I drew the logo on them. And I actually, not only did I just love this little dog and the tales he told, but I took away a lot of things from it. I went to the library and took out some of these books and read them. That's awesome. I read The Red Badge of Courage when I was way too young to read it. And I read A Tale of Two Cities, which was a double episode. So that was very exciting. That's a PBS win. Plus, at the end of every episode of Wishbone, there was a little behind-the-scenes segment where they showed you how they did some special effect in the ah. episode. So that was another film takeaway. Mm. Like Specifically, mm. I remember in the Tale of Two Cities episode that they showed Foley. They showed how to make sound effects along with the episode. That part where you hear the guillotine come down, they showed how they made that sound effect by chopping a head of lettuce in half with a machete. And they were showing how the sound engineer would watch the footage and click these coconuts along with the horse to make the sound effects. So, Oh, cool. I learned a lot from Wishbone. You love to learn, Kim Diaz. That's what I think. I do. I want to ask you one more question. You are a mom mm-hmm. now. And how has that affected the way you think about kids' media, the way you make kids' media? How has the fact that you are a person that makes kids' media affected the way that you are a mom First of all, the way that it has affected my life is that it is just the best thing Mm. that could ever happen to anybody, I think. I'm always tired and I'm always really busy and it's so hard for me to schedule anything besides work and being at home. But when I do, I really appreciate it all the more. But all that aside, it's just the most amazing feeling. It's the most amazing love that you could ever imagine. And that's the number one thing. I think that my priorities have just shifted. I think work is very important and I care a lot about what I do. And I always put forward my best effort and everything at work. But at the end of the day, my family is the most important thing. So that's one thing that is different. Beyond that, I mean, my daughter, she's almost a year and a half. So she's not quite entered the demographic yet, even of what I do. But she sees it. She would watch the Sunny Side Up show when I was on it. And she sees the finished stuff on Sesame Studios. But she also watches rough animations and cuts that I'm approving and all that when I'm doing work at home. And it's really cool because some videos, they don't grab her at all. And she just looks away or tries to change it. So that's really informative. But then it's some videos, she claps along and asks for more. And if we sing a song that was in one of the videos in progress that she's seen and she liked it, she'll smile. And she doesn't really sing yet, but she'll try to sing along. So being in the process of making stuff, it's really cool to see how she reacts to things because it's just a very, very small test audience. Just spending time with her. The thing I've realized is not only it's convenient now that I know how to puppeteer because I can put on really good shows for her and her stuffed animals, but then also I know how performers will engage with the camera to engage with kids at home. So I have a leg up on knowing, I'm sure I would have figured it out eventually anyway, just through being a mom, but I still remember all of the public domain (laughs) nursery rhymes that we used to sing on the show and I show her (laughs) old Sunny Side Up videos sometimes. Cool. Yeah. Super quick question round for you, Kim Diaz. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite current piece of kids' media? (laughs) What is the thing that's exciting to you right now? 
Oh my gosh. Um, Badanamu kids. Wait, is that the ponytail? Yeah. Ponytail. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good, a good answer. If you could spend your afternoon dangling your toes in the kiddie pool with anybody, besides me, of course, who would it be? Mm, who should I some, talk to? Who do I want? It? Somebody from Kids Media? Yeah. Hmm. Someone I don't know? Yeah. Hmm. Can be anybody. I would love to talk to Steve Burns. Yeah. Which brings <laughs> me to my final question. <laughs> okay. Who would you rather get into the jacuzzi with? Steve or Joe? Steve. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you yeah. for that answer. And <laughs> <laughs> will you stick around to play some games with us? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad you said yes. Okay, we're going to switch lanes. We're going to swim a few laps without you, Kim Diaz, and then we're going to come back to you. Okay. We are going to continue to enjoy this sunny day at the kiddie pool by taking a deep dive into a television show from the 90s that was so very important to me. We all have that show or that book or that toy that made us feel like, hey, somebody made this for me. How did they know? And that is what this deep dive is all about. But for now. Fetch your fedoras and button up your trench coats because all these people want to know where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Yes, that's right. Let's all remember the ultimate geography mystery game show, PBS's masterpiece and the thing that shaped the human I am today. Okay, quick overview. You've got Carmen San Diego the elusive, red-trench-coated, globe-trotting villain. You've got her animated villainous henchman. You've got host Greg Lee testing the global knowledge of three tweenage contestants, a.k.a. the gumshoes. And you have the queen of sleuth herself, Lynn Thigpen, the chief. The episode begins with the chief presenting the day's mystery and the gumshoes competing to locate Carmen and her sidekicks. There is a live, insane studio audience, and the gumshoes. What a glorious collection of nerds. I think this is why I felt so connected to the show. It was absolutely thrilling to watch other studious, bespectacled youths show off their smarts and compete to win a trip to any state in the USA. And let's not forget the presence of the OG acapella masters before Pentatonics and Pitch Perfect. We had Ryan Kelly. Okay, now all we need is that phone. Not only did they drop a sick theme song for the show, but they appeared in every episode as the house band, offering musical clues and punctuating moments of mystery with clever, sometimes punny, stings. If you watch some of the old clips, you'll see Greg Lee's genuine surprise and delight, and you'll probably find yourself wondering how many of their antics were planned or whether they were just having so much fun that they went way off script. Fish row. No. No. <laughs> Nothing there. We turn both the mech around. Christy, your turn. Clemson University. Clemson University. Hold the tiger. 
Hold the tiger! <laughs> Nothing there. We turn all three back around. And a little something special from the boys. Go ahead, Johnny. You know, the 90s was a golden age of game shows for kids, but this was my drink of choice. And here's the thing I learned this week. The show was a spin-off of the Broderbund, remember those, computer game. I thought it was the other way around, because it was only after I became obsessed with the show that I insisted my parents buy me the computer game. And this was pre-CD-ROM, folks. The Carmen Sandiego PC experience included hard disks that you inserted in order, building upon your progress to experience the full extent of the game. You can imagine my devastation when my younger sister erased my game when I had made it to disk 11 out of 13. True story. Now, the target age range for this series was 10 to 14, which is slightly beyond the focus of the media makers we talked to in this podcast. But since I was only eight years old when I forced two of my five younger siblings to participate in a basement recreation of the show hosted by me circa Thanksgiving of 1994, I think it's still relevant. hosting an episode of Carmen Sandiego in my basement. And by 10 seconds on the clock, I did mean watch my fingers in the air as I count down from 10. So the real gumshoes had to answer very advanced questions. They had to pass a test in order to qualify to be a contestant. The show celebrated and valued actual knowledge of global geography. In fact, it came into existence partly in answer to a National Geographic study which revealed a tremendous ignorance of geography among Americans. That was according to the New York Times in 1991, although I fear today's Americans are similarly out of touch with the planet. But PBS made a real effort to create a generation of globally aware citizens, and for that, I really applaud them. Okay, and then there's the chief. The chief. The chief was the ultimate boss lady. Smart, efficient, a sense of humor, and a sense of integrity. The mission stakes were always high, and as much as I wanted to see the gumshoes catch the bad guys for the sake of the people, capital T, capital P, I wanted them to succeed for the chief. I wanted to succeed for the chief. And to talk a little more about Lynn Thigpen, she was nominated for six Emmys for her work on the show, And although she didn't win any, she did win a Tony Award. And she appeared in the original Broadway cast of Godspell. But she did not win a Tony Award for that. She won a Tony Award for a play called An American Daughter. And, and, this wasn't even her only stint in kids' media. She voiced Luna the Moon in Nickelodeon's Bear in the Big Blue House. You guys, Carmen Sandiego is a goldmine of tidbits. Beyond the curricular street cred, 
the show earned a special place in my heart by being my gateway drug into all things detective. My obsession with where in the world is Carmen Sandiego blossomed into a devout following of murder, she wrote. I bounced straight from the chief to Jessica Fletcher, and from there I detoured to the X-Files and Special Agent Dana Scully. And finally, I became my own crime-loving detective persona. While making theater in Chicago, I developed a character called Detective Viola Egg. With her partner Alfie, she kept the streets of Chicago crime-free in a series of late-night original stage shows. And when I was hired to host and write for Sunnyside Up on Sprout, I used Detective Viola Egg as the basis for a detective segment on Sprout in which Chica and I solve preschool-friendly mysteries involving dinosaur eggs, baseballs, rhyming words, and more. We've even been joined by William Shatner and Mariska Hargitay in our detective headquarters. Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego was my first 360 fan experience. It was an early iteration of transmedia franchise and the kind of thing that so many kids' media makers are constantly after today, myself included. It was a computer game, a television show, a smart curriculum with a purpose. There were t-shirts and jackets, an SNL parody, and an entire Today Show segment inspired by the series. Good stuff. Katie, it's kind of a catchy tune, isn't it? Where in the world am I? Well, now, Chief Lynn Thigpen passed away unexpectedly in 2003, but you can bet your bottom dollar I am still one of her gumshoes. Whether I'm solving a mystery with Chica on Sunnyside Up or just trying to track down my car keys, in my heart of hearts, I'll always be wondering where in the world is Carmen San Diego? So before we release Kim Diaz back into the wild, we want to play some games with her. This first game is called, wait, what are we calling it? Um, which show is real? Two on the nose. Uh, great. Um, we are going to give you the names of four children's television shows. One title is real. Three titles are completely made up. Let's play. Okay, round one. The shows are Chorlton and the Wheelies, <laughs> Lala the Emu, the Flimpies, Gowns Around Town. Which is the real children's television show? Wow, one of those is a real show. One of those is a um, real show. What was the Lala one again? Lala the Emu. I'm going to go with Lala the Emu. Well, you were wrong. <laughs> the real show on that list was Charlton and the Wheelies. Oh. But uh, I think somebody's got to write La La the Emu. It's not there yet. should be there. I thought you made up the Wheelies one because of the Wheelers in Return oh, to Oz. That's such why a good movie. I laughed because I assumed that came straight from your brain. No, it did not oh, come straight from right. my brain. It came straight from the UK. Okay. All right. Round two. Bananas and Splits. Children of the Stones. <laughs> Garden Ghost Babies, Galaxy Girl of the Future. 
Oh my gosh. Three of those shows do not exist yet. One show has existed in the world. Oh man. Ghost Babies of the Garden? You think the real one is Ghost Babies of the Garden? Garden no, Ghost um, Babies? No, I don't think that, but I want it to be the answer, so I'm going to put it in as my answer. Well, Garden Ghost Babies, again, does not exist yet. <laughs> You're free to write it. It's okay. a property that's up for giveaway. Okay. The real show is Children of the Stones, Oh, which yeah. is a real British television drama serial from 1976. Is it about like the Rolling Stones and their kids? It followed the adventures of astrophysicist Adam Brake and his young son after they arrive in a small village which is built in the midst of a stone circle, possibly not unlike Stonehenge. Oh. It actually sounds really cool. It does, yeah. All right. We've got one more round for you. Okay. So far you're losing. Yeah. All right. The show (laughs) titles are The New Shmoo, Weather Together. Potsy and the Planets, Gathering of Noses, which Um, is the real children's television show. um, I'm going to go with Potsy and the Planets. Kim Diaz, you are incorrect for the (laughs) third and final time. That is not the name of a real show yet. Okay. The real show on that list was The New Shmoo, which is a 30-minute Saturday morning animated series based on the character from the Little Abner comic strip. All those other titles, however, are completely up for grabs and available for development. So feel free to just like run with one of those folks and pitch it back to Kim Diaz at Sesame Studios. She will know that we sent you. Well, not Garden Ghost Babies. I'm going to do that on my own. (laughs) All right. So the next game we're going to play is called Pitch It. Kim, since you are a person that hears a lot of pitches, we've got some elements that make up a show. We've got them on little strips of paper here. We've got a theme for our show. We've got a main character for our show. And we have a setting for our show. So I'm going to let you read these three strips of paper. And then I want you to pitch us the show. And you have one minute. So what do your strips say? They say North Pole, Mm. Talking Car, Mm -hmm. and Sci-Fi. Great. Doesn't matter how long is the show. and It's all all up to you. You have one minute to pitch us a sci-fi show In the North Pole, starring a talking car. We have one minute on the clock. Go. So, the holiday season is a magical time of year for kids all around the world. It's it's such a special time for young children waking up in the morning and um, going to the Christmas tree, opening their presents, or... Um, spending the evenings lighting the menorah with their family, whatever, however you celebrate. It's a fantastic time of year. Um, but unfortunately, as we get older, sometimes we lose a little bit of the magic in our investment in the season. 30 seconds. So what we are going to work on developing is a sci-fi holiday special, a movie targeting um, tween boys. <laughs> it's set in the North Pole. And it's about Santa Claus developing new technology for getting his presence all around the world. Um, and Ten seconds. What he <laughs> finds is a talking car that unfortunately becomes a little bit too intelligent and threatens the safety of the entire planet. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, what's the project called? Just give it a title. <laughs> it's called Danger Claus is Coming to Town. Wow, thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> that's fun. So, Kim, before you go, we have one more game to play with you. This game is called Tune Time. (laughs) And the way Tune Time works is you, the guest, will pull a song style, a theme, and you're going to pull a character. 
And together, I'm not going to leave you totally on your own for this. Together, we are going to make up a brand new song that is going to probably be a really good song. I think it's going to be a really good song. Okay. (laughs) So tell our listeners all about the categories that you are seeing on those strips of paper. Our challenge for the day is a pop song. Okay. About a duck with allergies. Starring a duck, and it's about allergies. And we're going to use the hit single, Baby, by one Justin Bieber. So that's Mm going to be our foundation for this. So for those of you that forget how that goes. We'll have to work on the verses with me. (laughs) Okay. But I already have an idea for the chorus. Why don't you start us off? Yeah. (laughs) Wait, with what? At the chorus? I need my epi, epi, epi pen. My epi, epi, epi pen. My epi, epi, epi pen. That's all I know. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. So that's our chorus. What is our verse then? Um. So it's a duck about al. It's allergies. I am a duck and I am allergic to what? Water. To water. It's so much hotter than I thought it would be. Feel bad for me. I'm a duck that's allergic <laughs> to, to water. Epi, epi, epi pen. I need my epi, epi, epi pen. My epi, epi, epi pen. So I can swim with the other ducks. Oh my god! Okay. When I was really young, I wanted to swim. <laughs> but the water I couldn't get in. Okay, yeah, sorry. Okay. I just don't know how it goes. When yeah. I was a duck, I wanted to swim. But oh, the water I couldn't get in. Because I was gonna break out in hives. And I'm just trying to stay alive. <laughs> Somebody get my epi, epi, epi pen. Go get my epi, epi, epi pen. My epi, epi, epi pen. So I can live my duck life, life. <laughs> ha! Wow. Okay. I think I think that's it. <laughs> Good. Yeah, it was just a song session. Yeah. We don't have to walk away with the cut and record and whatever. Yeah. So there you go. That's the tune you didn't know about a duck who is allergic to water. It's the worst. Well, Kim Diaz, I think we've given our listeners a lot to think about. Uh-huh. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. It was such a treat to chat with you. I know. It was really fun. Thanks for having me. Of course. And so if our listeners wanted to pitch something to Sesame Studios, where would they go to do that? Well, they can actually go to www.sesamestudios.com on the internet. On the World Wide Web. Yeah, and anybody can pitch an idea through that site. It handles some of the fine print. You can upload a portfolio and a link to any materials that go along with your project and a little description of it, and it goes right into my email inbox, and I actually look at it every single day. If you upload something through the site, I will definitely see it. Cool. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to thank Kim Diaz for joining me in the kiddie pool. Thanks for giving us insight into your kids' media journey and for being down to play some games with us. The show is written by me, produced and edited by Michal Richardson. Thank you to Erica Rabner for lending me your brain holes and offering creative consultation. If there's someone you want us to splash around with here at the kiddie pool, or if you have an idea for the deep dive, find us on Facebook. 
Now excuse me while I towel off. My feet are prunes, you guys. Get me out of here. Oh, he's the car.